Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning, everyone. It's a privilege to read God's Word. This is God's Word, and it is eternally true. From Acts uh, chapter 11, verse 27, till end of chapter 12. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized them, he put him in prison delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So Peter was kept in the prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter's side and woke him up, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and continued to follow. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel departed from him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord has sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. When he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing in front of the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. They kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning them to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, Report these things to James and the brethren. Then he left and went to another place. Now when, the, when, now when day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. When Herod had searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they let be, they let, sorry, 
Um, when Herod searched for him and had not found him, he examined the guards and ordered that they be led away to execution. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. Now he was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord, they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace, because their country was fed by the king's country. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. The people kept crying out, The voice of a god and not of a man! And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. At the end of... The sermon, we, today we have the joy and privilege of ordaining our brother Caleb Starr to the office of deacon. And so we have Caleb's family here, welcome. And this is a great joy for us and honor for us as a church to be a part of that work. This is some, something God has done and we simply get to recognize and confirm it together. Well today, as we're going to continue in our study of the book of Acts, we're coming with chapter 12 to the end of a section of the book of Acts. The second section, which is focused on the spread of the gospel and the work of the Spirit in the regions around Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And starting with next chapter, chapter 13, we go into the third section of the book, which is about Paul's missionary journeys. And then there's a fourth final section, which is about Paul's final trials and his last of all voyage to Rome. So that means after today, we'll be right around halfway through this book. Have you been enjoying our time together in this part of God's Word? I definitely have. I'm very thankful that God has led us here. I think it's very timely and helpful. Well, I had our readers pick up with the end of chapter 11 because we didn't have time quite to cover those verses last week. I want to say just a few words about them. You remember that the context is that Luke has taken us to Antioch. And then there's been some experimenting with the gospel that's been happening there. Not the bad kind of experimenting, but the good kind. They've been trying it out in a new audience, the Gentiles. This is the, really the first time that the disciples of Jesus have started preaching to the Gentiles. And the results are huge. The Gentiles show themselves to be ripe for the picking. They respond, many of them, positively to the message of reconciliation through the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved are joined to this new group of believers, and a church is forming. The church back in Jerusalem gets word of what's going down up there. They send Barnabas up to vet it, to, to see if it's legit and the real deal. And Barnabas shows up and he rejoices in the abundant grace of God. He adds his gift of encouragement to the work, and the work continues more and more to prosper. And Barnabas is a sign of incredible humility, thinks to himself, this is a great work of God's Spirit. It needs a great man to lead it. So I know such a man. And he goes looking for the Apostle Paul back home in Tarsus. He brings Paul down. They spend a good year together meeting with the Christians in the churches and teaching many people, it says, teaching many people. 
Um, and so that's, that's the context for these final verses. It's there in that context that a group of prophets come. We read, and they come from Jerusalem. Verse 27 says, Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. Let's talk just for a minute about prophets and prophecy. There were three offices, formal offices of authority and leadership that God had raised up and established for his people, for their good, for their care in the Old Testament. Prophets, priests, and kings. The three formal offices under the Old Covenant that God had established. And this is a carryover from the Old Testament. These prophets are a carryover from those offices. And we're going to see them again come up in the book of Acts. And we're going to see them recognized in Paul's letters. Paul, in um, at least one place, he recognizes them as among the gifts given to the church. Apostles first, and then prophets, and then evangelists, and then pastor teachers. So he gives primacy of this formal gift and office of prophet over pastors and teachers. But like with the gift of of apostle, the, the office of apostle, we understand prophecy, the office of prophecy at least now, to have ceased. Now I'm not saying that prophecy of all kinds whatsoever has ceased, but only this formal office held by someone called prophet has now ceased. Just like we don't, or we're not ordaining a prophet today, we're ordaining a deacon. We're not going to ordain a capital A apostle anymore They had a special role to play. Their role is complete, and it is done. Well, prophets are something of a carryover for a time, still in operation in this period of the early church, and they're still there. The transfer between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant was not like a switch that gets flipped. Suddenly, the old administration moves out, the new administration moves in. It's not like that. There is a transfer period between the way God administered his old covenant and the way he intended to lead and shape and guide his church in the future. And we're watching that transference, that that period, uh, happen and unfold right before us in this book of Acts. I do believe God continues to speak today by his spirit. He gives dreams. Many of you have had dreams that gave you direction in your life. Um, that are, and there's been so many accounts of special operations of the Spirit of God that we would call prophetic, that you can point to and are verified in church history, that I'm not at all ready to say prophecy has ceased, or that words of knowledge have ceased altogether, but only saying that this office of prophet has fulfilled its purpose and is now done. Agabus was the name of one of these prophets during this period, and he comes with a group of prophets up to, up to Antioch for a visit. We don't know why they come, but they come, and presumably in a worship service, Agabus stands up, and by the Spirit, says Luke, he prophesies about a great famine that's going to affect the whole world, and, we, and Luke confirms that that took place, and other histories confirm that that took place in the reign of Claudius. Claudius, the recently... Uh, appointed emperor of Rome at this point. We know that his early reign was beset with a series of bad harvests that had a tremendously negative and hard impact on the Roman Empire, and certainly certain areas in particular. We complain about 
the cost of eggs being $4 a dozen. Well, imagine no eggs for anybody at any cost. Really desperate, difficult circumstances. And they seem to know that this is, uh, Agabus's prophecy seems to indicate that Judea is going to be particularly hard hit because immediately they start setting aside funds up there in Antioch, taking up collections, and thinking, we need to help relieve. We, we, we know that it's going to be hard times. Let's send them a gift to help relieve their, um, their difficulty. So that's what they do, and they take up this collection. And this is a wonderful example, again, whenever God's Spirit has worked in marvelous ways earlier in Acts, do you remember what happens, the result of it immediately? The fruit is people sharing, caring for one another, being generous, bringing large gifts to, re- to meet the needs of the poor and the needy in the community. It's a wonderful community spirit. Do we have that? That's what God would have us be towards one another. We are members of one body. We are, yes, we have independent households. Yes, we have all of these things and these distinctions and divisions. But Jesus and his spirit sees us as one body together. And he wants us to have this kind of sympathy and concern and care for each other that we see reflected here. So that when one member of the body suffers, the rest of the body suffers with it. When one member of the body is exalted or rejoices, the rest of the body rejoices with it. And that's not just within a church, but even between churches, we are together the body of Christ. Well, they took up this collection, verse 30, and they send it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders down in Judea. And that brings our focus back to Judea, to Jerusalem, for one final episode in the life and ministry of the Apostle Peter before we move on for the rest of the book to focus on the Apostle Paul. And in the middle, we have the raising up of this new persecutor of the church. A new persecutor, a new name, a new bad guy. And we see that his motives are somewhat new as well. Different from the motives of Paul, for instance. Paul was a zealous upholder and protector of what he he thought he was doing service to God. And this was what God required of him, was to persecute the church and put down the Christians. He was way wrong, but that was his motive. Herod, who were introduced here, has a different motive than that. Well, who is this King Herod? It's hard to keep track of all the Herods of the scriptures. There's a lot of them. This is like a family dynasty. The Herods are a family. Okay? In American terms, it's like the Kennedys or the Bushes, the Herods. They were Edomites originally, And they converted to Judaism. As we've talked about how this could happen. You could be a proselyte, a convert to Judaism. You could receive circumcision. You could embrace the law of Moses. And you could be considered a true Israelite. And you'd be assigned a tribe and be counted and and become part of God's people. This is the Herods had done this many generations before. And so there was a lot of Herods. And they were sort of of the ruling class. They're tight with the Caesars. Got a lot of family ties back in Italy with the Roman leaders. And in fact, this Herod, we understand, went, probably went to school with the current Caesar in power. They would have been appointed to their, their positions of leadership and authority by the Caesars back in Rome. At some times, multiple Herods would be ruling multiple areas of this part of the world at the same time in what was called a tetrarchy. So there could be like four 
Herods at any given moment, like in charge of some area of this part of the world. That also adds to the confusion of Herods. This is Herod Agrippa I. He's the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a nasty dude. He was a tyrant through and through. His grandson, though, Agrippa I, was thought of as a nice guy, a pretty kind-hearted, liked, likable leader. He was also known to be zealous for the customs of the Jews and the ceremonies of the Law of Moses. Not that interesting? But we see that he becomes a persecutor of the church, not because, like Paul, he's trying to protect the integrity of the Law of Moses and the honor of the Law of Moses against the threats perceived by the disciples, but because he wants to please people, because he wants to be popular, because he wants his people to like him. And he wants, we see this more and more, and even especially at the end of this chapter, the true character and motives of this man. He might be a nice guy. He might be a well-admired, generous, he was a very giving leader, providing for the people. But his motives are bad. And we see the cost of bad motives is high for God's people. So what did he do? Verse 1, Herod Agrippa I laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. There's also a lot of Jameses and a lot of Marks and a lot of Johns to keep track, and Marys to keep track of in the Bible and in this chapter. This is sort of like a who's who of the scriptures in some ways coming together and a lot of confusion about names. Well, this James that's beheaded here is James the Apostle, brother of the Apostle John, sons of Zebedee. So this is the brother of John, the the apostle John. James, also an apostle of the Lord. There is another James who is an apostle who is mentioned in verse 17, and that's James the Lesser, he's sometimes called. He's James the son of Alphaeus. He's also an apostle, and from this time on, he becomes sort of the, the father of the Jerusalem church, the leader, for a number of years. This James, the brother of John, in verse 2, is the first apostle to be martyred for Jesus Christ. This is the first one to go. He's not the first believer to give up his life for Jesus. We've heard about Stephen, and there's likely others who died under that persecution. This is the first of the apostles to die. So this is a very significant and troubling, disturbing moment for the church, okay? But it's interesting that James's death is hardly, it's like in Greek, it's like two words. He was killed by the sword. It's like two Greek words that convey his whole, the account of his death. It seems like it should get, it, this, this is a significant moment. It seems like it should get, it should be more of a thing than that. Why isn't it more of a thing? Stephen, he got like 60 plus verses <laughs> chronicling his death and what led up to it. Here we just get James gets his head cut off. So why isn't it more of a thing? Well, Luke is not telling everybody's story. He's telling really one story, and it's not even Paul or Peter's story. It's really the story of the progress and advance of the gospel and the kingdom of Jesus. Stephen 
got the, the, the ink and the space, the column length that he got. Because that was integral to the next stage of development. The persecution that was inaugurated by Stephen scattered the people around out to the broader audience of Judea and Samaria. And it helped spread the gospel. It was what God used to bring about this next stage and next phase. Well, why is James mentioned at all, even with just a couple of words? Well, I think he's mentioned for this main reason. To show that Peter, who's going to be put in prison, his life is really on the line. Peter's got out of a pickle before. This looks like it's not going to happen. Suddenly an apostle has been killed, summarily executed by the sword. Peter's put in prison under the same sentence of death. The expectation for everybody is, oh no, Peter's going to die. The only reason he hasn't died already is a feast. A Jewish feast. The feast of Passover is upon them right now. And it's uncouth, it's unclean, it's not right for them to, do, to engage in an execution during this feast. And so here he is in prison awaiting his death at the end of the celebration of the feast. Okay, That's why he's there and why his, he's not immediately killed as well, as far as we can tell. So James's beheading serves to impress upon us that Peter, who's about to be arrested, was seriously in trouble and as good as dead. And that helps highlight what is one of the main points of this passage, main teachings of this passage at the heart of this, is that God is a deliverer and he delivers in response to prayer. Prayer is powerful. We sh- should be motivated to pray by what we see God, how we see God responding to the prayers of his people. So, when Herod saw in verse 3 that James's beheading pleased the Jews, there is a window into his motive. He targets Peter, another apostle, and we see that Herod craved popularity and liked to do what made the people happy. <laughs> okay, <laughs> this is, I'm on the right track. I was hoping that worked, and boy, did it work. Let's keep this going. Let's see how far I can, how much, I, how much capital I can accrue going and persecuting these people. It seems like the people in general were now becoming hostile to the believers. Earlier in Acts, we see that they were held at times in high regard, but now the people have turned against them. And this is probably has some, a lot to do with what went down at Cornelius' house, with the with the intermeshing of Jews and Gentiles, and how um, they, the, uh, the, other, the non-believing Jews would have seen this as uncleanness being accepted into the Jewish community. The whole plot of this story is really summed up in verse 5. Look at it, verse 5. Peter was kept in prison under sentence of death, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church of God. That's the whole setup. Herod the king versus the prayers of God's people. That's the whole tension and drama of the, and the question of this passage. Prayer, Herod the king and his intentions and the prayers of God's people. Who's going to win? Who's going to win? 
Here's an amazing thing. It's, verse 6 adds the tension. On the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, so we've come to the end of the feast, the night before the execution, everybody knows it's coming, on the very night, what do we find Peter doing? Sleeping. <laughs> what would you be doing? <laughs> <If> you <laughs> would you be sleeping? Okay, just imagine, you're on death row, the executioner's coming at light, dawn in the morning. Would you be sleeping? What would be on your mind? Peter's not just sleeping, but he's sleeping soundly. The angel has to kick him or strike him to get him to wake up. Peter! I mean, he's, he's deeply asleep. And he's sleeping not just soundly, but deeply because he's very slow to wake up. You see this? This made me, I think there's a lot of actual comedy in this chapter, not just here, but with Rhoda, the servant girl. It's really funny stuff. But um, I was thinking about funny things with my children at home at night, you know, how when they have to go to the bathroom in the night, but they don't, they're not fully awake, but they're not fully asleep, and things get weird. You know this? And you have to be like, come on, get out of bed. Come on, no, no, not that way, into the bathroom, come here. You know, I have to like, talk, talk, talk them through the whole thing. They'll, they'll, they, otherwise, they would not know what to do or what's going on. You know what I'm talking about? I think that that's sort of what's going on here with Peter and why the angel has to keep giving him instructions and why he's like, he, he doesn't even fully, uh, not aware of what's going on until he's on the other side of it. The angel has to tell him, you know, get up, Peter. Put on your clothes, Peter. Your shoes too, Peter. And your cloak, Peter. Follow me, Peter. <laughs> and Peter's sleeping. And I think this is an amazing testament to his state of mind and the peace of his heart. I don't think it's cocky, confident sleep. You know what I mean? Like, oh, God's got this. I'm getting out of this for sure. You know, that's cocky confidence. That's not Peter. I think he just trusts the Lord with his life. I belong to the Lord. Nothing can happen to me except his good and perfect will. If I die in the morning as it looks like I'm going to, I can sleep because the Lord sustains me. I'm his. I'm his. Is that your state of mind? To the approach to the difficulties and the stresses and the anxieties and the fears of your life. Are you able to trust them to the Lord like that? That's really extraordinary trust. A lot of us lose sleep, and our sleep is troubled because of the anxieties that we carry and don't entrust to God. Going to bed at night, for many of us, and putting our head on our pillow and going to sleep is an act of, is a confession of faith in God. Because it's like you have to die and leave it to God. You have to put your work aside and your efforts aside and, tr and entrust them to God. That they'll, they'll, they'll be, the work will still be there in the morning. The world will still be turning in the morning. God will still be in charge and in command in the morning. I have work to do, but I need to trust the Lord and go to bed. Our hearts, oh God, that God would give us that kind of trust of him. We sing about this when we sing Psalm 3. We've sung it here for a number of years. 
we took an expression of David's, a sentiment of David's expressed in Psalm 3, and we kind of recast it in the, um, in, along the lines of a, of a civil war hero and, a, and something that he said once about his courage on the battlefield. Stonewall Jackson famously said when asked about how he could have such courage on the battlefield, he said, well, I'm, I just think that I'm as safe out there as I am in my bed. God is good. He's out there with me. I'm as safe out there as if I was lying asleep in my bed. And that's why I can have courage and, and faith on the battlefield. David says this in Psalm 3. Listen to this. He says, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. I will not. I'm going to bed. God give us that kind of faith. So here's Peter sleeping. Meanwhile, Herod has him locked down like Fort Knox. There's four squads of soldiers. Now they're probably on rotation through the watches of the night. But he has double the normal security measures. It was normal for a for a for a uh, convict. What do you call them? A prisoner, that's the word, thank you. It's normal for a prisoner to be chained to a guard. It's, it's double security to have him chained to two guards. So here he is in the prison cell, chained to two guards. And then there's more, more guards outside guarding the way to the, to the prison. He's under maximum security. All these details are given to show us that there is no way Peter's getting out of this. This is a maximum security um, situation. And yet, remember, fervent prayers are being offered to God for him. Matthew Henry says that prayers and tears, prayers and tears, are the church's arms. Firearms, weapons. The church's weapons are prayers and tears. Does that make you feel powerful? <laughs> Feels pretty weak, doesn't it? Feels much better to have a bunch of Uzis, you know? <laughs> tanks. But no, God says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not of the flesh like that, tanks and guns. But they're mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. The church's arms and weapons are prayers and tears. With them, says Matthew Henry, with them she fights not only against her enemies but for her friends. And to those means, those tools, the church always has recourse. Peter had recourse to prayer, chained up like a criminal, like a prisoner. Wherever you are, you can always turn to those weapons. Do we pray? A visitor once recently noted that in our schedule of events in the week, we don't have a prayer meeting. I was kind of embarrassed. <laughs> we need to pray more. Look at how God responds to the fervent prayers of his people. The angel comes. He says, get up quickly, Peter. The chains fall off by the power of God. And God, if he wants, and, and Peter is led out through the locked gate that opens of its own accord for him by the power of God. 
And what does this tell us? If God wants you delivered, you'll be delivered. There is absolutely nothing that can stand in his way. God is all-powerful. He spoke the world into existence. Chains, guards, weapons, gates, they're nothing to the Lord. If he wants to rescue you from your sin, from bondage to sin, you'll be rescued. Now, has God given us any method or means for affecting what he wants to do? Uh, Do we have any way that he has provided us to influence his mind and his will? It puts you in a little bit of a theological quandary, doesn't it? (laughs) There's something mysterious about prayer. Wonderful, mysterious about it. In that God who knows all things, before anything came into existence, he'd be predetermined it whatsoever that shall come to pass, invites you and me to appeal to him for things. And even says at times in scripture that his people and their appeals and their prayers influence him and change his mind. That's mysterious and wonderful. And we don't, I don't need to, we don't need to worry too much about how to resolve all those tensions. You know what? We, all we need to really worry about is this. Since God has given us a way, a means of pouring out our heart and our desires to him, and invites us to tell us what we want him to do. The all-powerful God. We should, we should really take that opportunity. <laughs> Don't you think? <laughs> we absolutely should use prayer and believe in prayer. And that should be what we are about. He said his house is to be called a house of prayer. We are to be a praying people. The Lord rescued Peter out of a hopeless situation because of the prayers of his people. Hudson Taylor famously said, When we work, we work. When we pray, God works. I love that. That's a wonderful saying. When we work, we work. (laughs) And we only get as far as we get. When we pray, God works. Ah, let's pray that God would help us and answer our need and not make that a last resort, for goodness sake. Isn't that how, that's how bad we are. Prayer is a last resort. I think it's beautiful. Someone pointed this out to me between the services. It had not occurred to me that faith, God wants faith to be exercised in our prayers, right? He wants, the, the people are praying fervently. And he says in his word that the, the effectual fervent prayer of righteous people changes the outcome. It, it accomplishes much. But it's fascinating that these people didn't even believe when Peter came to the door that God had answered their prayer. They're still at prayer, and they're like, Rhoda, stop it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Shut up, Rhoda. <laughs> Don't you see we're praying? <laughs> it's prayer the size of a mustard seed. That God, that's all he requires. So it's not perfect faith, and it's not even your faith that does it. It's just that faith is good for you. Faith is what God exercises as he, as he makes us cry out to him to demonstrate our dependence on him. Is it good for you to depend on God? Is it good for God to put you in a position where that's really clear to you, that you have to, that you have no other recourse than for him to act and to work? If I can find it, I want to read you a quote. Well, I can't find it. Forget that. We should pray. Where does Peter go once he comes to his senses out there on the street? He goes to Mary's house. Here's one of the other names that we've got to figure out. Who's this Mary? Well, Mary is the, the mother of John. Who's John? This is John Mark. Not John the Apostle, but John Mark of Mark's Gospel. Okay? So this is a, this is a guy who's going to write one of the Gospels, John Mark. And Mary is his mom. And Mary's got this nice house. It must be a nice house because it's got a courtyard and a gate, and it's got room for a lot of people to get together and pray in. So it's probably one of the prominent houses in the Christian community, and it had become one of their regular meeting places. That's where Peter goes. He goes to where he knows the people are going to be under such circumstances. He goes to church, and he finds them there praying. And I love this encounter with Rhoda. It's just, it's hilarious. Peter knocks at the gate. Rhoda recognizes his voice and rushes off to tell everybody without letting him in. <laughs> Leaves him standing out there. You know, he's in danger. People are going to be looking for him. And Rhoda's like, ah, he's here. And runs off and leaves him. I guess we can maybe fairly estimate her hair color. Ooh, boo. Rhoda's, they say, Rhoda's, uh, she runs in, she announces Peter's there in front of the gate. They don't believe her. They accuse her of being off her rocker, verse 15. Rhoda keeps insisting, no, it's him, it's him. And they say, no, Rhoda, if it's anything, it's his angel. Now, we don't fully understand what they mean, what they intend with this expression, it's his angel. But best guess is, this is giving voice to like a popular idea, which is still popular today, that every godly person has his or her dedicated angel, assigned angel, guardian angel. We say this today, his guardian angel's working overtime, you know. This is, this is still part of our understanding, right or wrong. It seems like it might have been part of theirs. But there's not enough scripture actually to establish that as a doctrine or as a, true, as, as a truth, <laughs> It just isn't. There's a couple of little indications like this that maybe there's something to it. But actually, there's, there's lots of other instances where one angel's looking out for a lot of people or a lot of angels are looking out for one people. And so it's just all we need, all we should be satisfied is with is this. Angels are real. Angels are ministers of God for our good. They are looking out for the church as ministers of God and agents of the Lord. 
And they, they do his will, and they protect his people from harm. And sometimes they do that in mass, and sometimes they do that as one, as God wills and as God sees the need. You know, it's how can you even calculate these things? These are beyond our grasp and our understanding. Peter finally is heard knocking at the door, and they let him into the house, and everybody's amazed. That's verse 16. He quiets everybody down. Maybe he's afraid, wants to shush them. We've got to keep this on the down low. We don't know. But he quiets everybody down. He tells them what the Lord had done and leading him out of prison. And he says, report these things to James and the brethren. This is the other James of the passage. James, the son of Alphaeus, sometimes called James the Less. And at this point, Peter leaves and goes into hiding somewhere else in the city, probably, to avoid detection. And he eventually, by the end of uh, by verse 19, has snuck off to Caesarea on the coast to spend time there, to get out of town. And then there's these poor soldiers. It was customary for the soldier in charge of a prisoner to receive the penalty that, the, that was due the prisoner. So if it was petty theft, whatever the penalty for that was, he was going to pay it himself. If it was an execution or death sentence, the soldiers die. And it seems as if that's what happens here to these men. Well, in the final section of this passage, um, the, the remainder of the chapter, it's a separate but related account about the demise of Herod. Herod gets his comeuppance as a man, as an unbelieving, wicked man, really. As nice as he may seem, as liked as he may be as a ruler, underneath are corrupt and impure and selfish and not godly motives. And this comes out, and it, is, it, has, it receives a amazing, visible, public, notorious judgment from God. What happens to Herod? The setting for Herod's demise involves international tensions between the Judeans and the Phoenicians. Herod, it says in verse 20, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. This is Phoenicia, just to the north of Judea. For a long time, they've had special relations together as countries, but they're separate countries. We don't know why Herod gets ticked off at them. But we know that that means bad things for them. Like an, he imposes like embargoes on trade, and they depend for food on Judea. So this is very bad for the Phoenicians, whatever happens. And they need to get back in Herod's good graces. So they work through his chamberlain, probably they bribe his chamberlain Blastus, to get a meeting with Herod to seek peace and establish peace with the king, to get back in his good graces. And here's how Luke records it, verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them, to all the assembled people. The Phoenicians are present there. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory, or did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and died. Do you guys, have you ever heard of the Jewish historian Josephus? Heard of Josephus? 
Josephus has an account of this. And it tracks very much, it's in fundamental agreement with Luke's own account of it, except it adds some really helpful details. So Luke says, on an appointed day, and Josephus explains what the day was. It was in Caesarea. The day was a special day of celebration of the Caesar. Here's Herod presiding over this, the festivities, the games, in the theater. It's in the theater in Josephus' account. And on the second day of these games, in honor of the Caesar, here comes Herod into the theater early in the morning. And where, it's, where Luke says he donned his royal robes, Josephus says it's like the people who dress for the Met Gala. Have you seen the pictures of the celebrities that met, dress for the Met Gala? The ostentatiousness, the lavishness, it's o- over the top to the max. You know what I'm talking about? The description of Josephus of Herod's robes on this day, they're just like that. It's like unbelievable. He has like, they're, they're silver and shining and reflecting the light. And the people start, in various parts of the, of the theater, start crying out, He's like a god. Formerly we thought of you as just a man, but now we think of you as so much more. And please help us, O God. And just like Luke says, where he doesn't shut it down, and he doesn't give glory to God. So Josephus says the same thing. Let's see if I can find it. The rays of the sun reflecting from so splendid a garb gave this man a majestic and awful appearance, says Josephus. In short time, they began in several parts of the theater flattering acclamations which proved pernicious to him. They called him a god and pleaded with him to be propitious to them. Help us, saying, Hitherto we have respected you as a man, but now we acknowledge you to be more than mortal. The king neither reproved these persons nor rejected the impious flattery. And just like with Luke's account, he was immediately struck with severe pain in the gut. And in Josephus' account, he even acknowledges publicly that this is a judgment from God, and he is not long for the world. And he even says, such is your God. And he's carried off to the palace, and five days later, he dies in agony. Well, there's a nice way to end, if I'll win with this, an application of that. This is a warning to you and to me. What's Herod's motive in life? What's his basic motive for all that he does in life? What? To be a star, yeah. To be an Instagram influencer. To grow in popularity. To be liked by people. Is it bad to be liked by people? In proportion, it's not bad. When it's elevated to the highest ordering principle of your life above the glory of God, it's awful. God is jealous for his glory. 
And he demands that all people everywhere humble themselves before him and glorify him. And so Herod is a warning to all of us. Every one of us has a Herod in our hearts. Me and you. We need to humble ourselves before God and realize that we are his servants. We are not worthy of praise. He is. If we have leadership and importance and significance, it's for his glory and for the good of the people that we're over. It's not for us. There's the last two verses. We'll just read them and be done. Verse 24 says that the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. God is doing his work. This is the story of the book of Acts. And Luke keeps bringing us back with these little insertions to what, remind us what the point is. The word of the Lord spreading and growing and multiplying, doing its work. Can't be stopped. And on both ends of this passage, Barnabas and Saul in their journey to bring offerings of relief to the people of Jerusalem are here. And here we return to Paul and, and to Barnabas, but now they have a third John Mark is, what is he? He's the relative of Barnabas. Is he the nephew? Yeah, I think he's the nephew of Barnabas. So the son of Mary. Barnabas is Mary's brother. And the three of them together return to Antioch as a team. Well, we're going to pray, and then we're going to move on to the ordination of our brother Caleb. Okay? Join with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word And I pray that you would teach us all that you intend for us to glean and that you would transform us by it into your image, especially, Lord, that you would cause us to become men and women and children of prayer, that we would believe and earnestly seek you and have faith that you are there and that you desire to do good things and mighty things and show yourself strong in our deliverance and in our need. Lord, help us to see that we are needy. Motivate us by trials to turn to you in prayer as we should. And Lord, meet our need. Hear our prayers and answer them. And Lord, help us not to be vainglorious or to seek the glory of men or to build up ourselves in the image of and the watch and eyes of our brothers and sisters or our neighbors or anyone. Help us, Father, to fear you and to be concerned about what you think of us. Help us to sincerely, humbly, and honestly seek your glory and kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.